All right. Welcome to the uh, Google Hangout. I have a uh, friend and a guest with me. Uh, this is uh, Pastor Sean Cole, who is the uh, lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Star, uh, Sterling, Colorado. He is also an adjunct professor at Colorado Christian University. Um, he is uh, the uh, uh, host of a podcast also, uh, just like I am. As a matter of fact, I was looking at this, and we have a lot in common, Sean. Um, your, your podcast is called Understanding Christianity Podcast. Mine's called Soteriology 101. And um, I'm also a pastor, a teaching pastor at um, First Baptist Church of Richardson. I also work with the Texas Baptist as a, the director of youth evangelism and um, and also an adjunct professor. So we we have a lot in common, both pa- pastors and adjunct professors and um, have podcasts. And so uh, the, the distinction between us, and I think that will become evident in our discussion today, is that you are a Southern Baptist who is also happens to be Calvinistic in your soteriology. Um uh, five-point Calvinist, if I'm not mistaken, That's and I, I am not. I'm, a, I guess, a traditional Southern Baptist, the way you might call that, where I do not side with full um, outright Arminianism, um, but uh, there are more common threads within Arminianism with me than with you, I guess we could say it that way. Um, and, and those who are familiar with my podcast probably know my stance and those familiar with yours probably know yours. And as we go through this podcast or this discussion here at Google Hangout, um, I think that will become more evident. And the reason I invited Sean for this Google Hangout is because, uh, as I've said on my podcast, I'm an educator at heart. I feel that Sean is as well. Um, I think both of us um, have a common goal of treating each other with respect and cordiality, which is all too rare. Um, on social media these days, um, especially when it comes to contention between our sociological perspectives, Calvinism versus non-Calvinism especially. And I thought this could be a good example of a, a biblical discussion over the doctrines that are, that are really having to do the most important topic in the world, as far as I'm concerned, the doctrine of our salvation. How are we saved? What does that look like? Um, there may be some philosophical arguments that jump in here and there just because that's the nature of a discussion and it's not necessarily wrong or evil by any means. But I'm in agreement with Sean and uh, one of his other podcasts and dealing with Jerry Walls, especially that the real authority here is the scripture. We, we have to go back to the Bible and ask ourselves, what does it mean? And that's what hermeneutics is all about. And of course, both sides believe they are uh, defending the word of God and defending their hermeneutical interpretation. Um, both are well intending. Both both groups, men and women who hold these views, love the Lord, are evangelistic, are a part of outreach, are part of ministry. And um, I absolutely have no ill will towards my brother Sean, and I know he doesn't towards me either from former conversations. And that's that's the reason, honestly, I I, I called up Sean and said, Sean, let's do this because I I really think that he is a brother who's uh, uh, well-spoken. He defends and he articulates Calvinism as well as I've heard anyone. Um, And he does so with cordiality and respect towards the person he's talking to. And and that is all too rare. And so I commend him for that and uh, appreciate him uh, taking the time this after, well, um, almost this afternoon, uh, here about five more minutes until this afternoon. I appreciate him taking the time to, to do that. John, do you do you want to say any words before we jump into really talking about Romans chapter nine? Is really the discussion I want to focus on, if we could. 
No, I no, I appreciate your kind words, and I agree with the same thing with you. Um, obviously, we have stark differences in our theology, and um, but I would say this that. Um, you do come to the scriptures with a passion for the authority of scriptures, and a lot of your arguments are not philosophical in nature, but are trying to be exegetical. And so um, I appreciate that. And so I'm looking forward to interacting with you on Romans 9, because I have interacted with your um, podcast and listened to them, and I've I've read the document that you sent me on your views, and I've as I've mulled them over and interacted, I, I've, I've come up with some specific questions that I do have for you, I think would be beneficial for you to clarify, because I think one of the big issues is that most Calvinists understand how to refute the Arminian view, but you're a different animal. <laughs> you're not an Arminian. You're a non-Calvinist. You're already starting. You're already calling me an animal. I mean, I'm already I'm calling you an animal. Nice to each other. <laughs> I said a different animal. I guess it's good. But you are a, a non-Calvinist, traditionalist Southern Baptist, and I think yeah. one of the difficulties of us in the Southern Baptist Calvinist camp is we're not really sure where you guys are coming from a lot of the times. And I think it's important for us to hear your point of view because we're so familiar with the Arminian view and you guys are quick to say, Hey, we're not Arminian. We're, we're different. So give us a listen. And so I, hopefully this is beneficial for both of our listeners to really unpack what you guys believe about these issues. Yeah. And I appreciate you saying that. Uh, I really do because that's, if you've heard me and I know you have heard me um, bemoan the fact that, it seems that every um, notable Calvinist, at least, the Matt Chandler's, the John Piper's, the J.I. Packer's, I mean, you name it, the, the guys everybody reads and knows, um, uh, and, I, and I've played them all and read them all on my podcast to prove this point, they all point the other side out as being the classical Wesleyan Arminian, the foresight faith kind of a perspective. And I'm always going, no, you know, yeah. <laughs> so... Because, well, one, I, I think uh, there's part of me that just wants to say there's there's other options. You know, there's another there's other views out there that are that are, I think, even a lot more robust. Obviously, I wouldn't hold to it if I didn't. But um, and so, yeah, the, the just acknowledging that fact alone is a huge step in the right direction, at least as far as I'm concerned, with regard to um, uh, engaging the text uh, in, in, a, in a profitable way. So um, with that said, I guess. um let me let me do this because I don't want us just to repeat everything we've said on the podcast because I suspect that the people who are going to take time to watch you and me talk are right. probably people who are pretty familiar with my perspective and possibly even your perspective having that we have engaged already on a couple podcasts. And so what I, what I want to do is recommend those who are watching this, if you happen to be new to this discussion and you've tuned into this, let me let me ask you to do something. Um, go and listen first and foremost to, uh, understanding Christianity podcast on August the 26th. Sean posted a, a podcast called the exposition of Romans nine. And he engages me and my perspective briefly there, but mostly just gives a positive affirmational, you know, uh, exposition of his own Calvinistic understanding of Romans nine. Um, and it's about an hour and a half show or something like that. Um, probably about as the same length as my line by line through Romans nine. If you go to Sotriology 101, click on the podcast page, scroll down a little ways, you'll find line by line through Romans nine. And you can listen to my take um, verse by verse through Romans nine. Um, and, and that may benefit you more so than listening to this. And then uh, I got figuring out what, what are they saying? How they, 
we can unpack some of that, uh, Sean, and and I'm glad to do that with some of the text, um, even though we've done it on those podcasts. But let's just say up front uh, to the listeners and those who are watching this, it might be benefit you to go and listen to each podcast and really compare and contrast the full exposition of those texts uh, line by line. Um, And and that would really, I think, help the the process. Um, I, I will say I did send Sean a copy of my commentary over Romans nine um, for which he was gracious enough to, to read through and look at and come up with some questions. And so um, if you, if you want to Sean, if, if this is the best way to do it, if you want to start with some of those questions, we can do that. Um, sure. Or we can, we can even just do um, kind of a verse by verse and kind of go through some of these, the differences in our perspective, if you want to. Um, but yeah. I'll ask what, what do you want to do? Well, I think it's good. I think it's good for people to go listen to the initial podcast first so they can hear the context of where we're coming from because we're, we've already given our view per se. And so I know this is not necessarily a debate. It's a discussion, but we're kind of asking each other questions and I hate to use the word cross examining, but we're just trying to figure out each other's views a little bit more closely. And so maybe I'll just start out. I withstood the cross examinations of James White. So I'm ready. Yeah, and I, I'm not anywhere close to his his, um, his caliber. So, um, but let me just ask. This is the big question. I think this is the one that everybody is hung up on, that everybody's having a hard time understanding. And so, this is and this is your opportunity to to really um, express that. And I guess my question specifically is, where in particular in Romans nine do you find the specific command or the specific issue? that what Paul is talking about is the noble cause that God is electing Israel to accomplish. And so can you unpack the noble cause, where you see the noble cause, how you define the noble cause, and, um, and then I'll maybe interact with your, with your answer there. Sure. Um, really, um, you jump right into it. Well, matter of fact, I'll, I'll refer back to your podcast because I just listened to it in preparation for this this morning on my way in. I just popped it on and started listening. I didn't get through the whole thing. I wish I had, but um, you did. I think you were doing a really good job, by the way, representing my view, and I really appreciate that. Um, but you, you even referred to something that I had not thought of that I was going to add into my commentary, so I'm going to give you credit for this. <laughs> you, you referred to Israel as being chosen as a son, um, that there's a reference there. Um, and so to talk about that real quick, as I, as I answer this question, I'm not trying to dodge the question, obviously, but sure. I think what you're saying there is, because re- I was thinking there it yeah. is noble cause, um, right. but I wanted to hear your, your take more on the, the concept of the son being representative of Israel. Sure. I think if you look at biblical theology, you see this issue of sonship starting with Adam. Um, Adam is even referred to, and I, I don't have this text in front of me, but in a sense, he's referred to as God's firstborn son in a sense that he's first created. Um, Israel is referred to as God's firstborn son as well. Um, and so where Adam failed in the garden and where Israel failed in their obedience to God and, and evidently, the, you know, eventually the exile, you've got the typology of Christ coming as the second Adam and the true Israel as the true firstborn son to accomplish what Adam never could accomplish and what Israel could never accomplish, but only what, what God in the flesh could accomplish as, as Christ, the son of God. And so that's, 
that typology or biblical theology of sonship kind of starts with Adam, goes through Israel, and culminates in Jesus. And then ultimately, when he adopts us into his family, we're called sons and daughters. Um, and, you know, in Hebrews chapter 2, Jesus says, I'm not ashamed to call you my brothers and sisters. So that's kind of that concept. Okay. Um, yeah, the, the, and I think that that's a really good um, parallel to the co- concept of God's calling or the noble, the noble purpose, noble cause. Um, that, that, and that, that is out of my translation that I use the NIV. I just grew up on the NIV, and so that's just what I've always used. I don't necessarily think it's the best of all the translations. And what, verse, what verse specifically is that that you're looking at? The, the verse 21 uses the, ter- the term noble purposes. Okay. Some for common use of noble purposes. And that's why I just, I just hung on to that term. And, and James White kind of, you know, played off of that term and said, you, you know, he, Flowers uses this term noble purpose over and over and over again. Um, and, 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 and it kind of marginalized me as, as, as if I'd come up with that myself. Now I realize his, the NASB uses a different term there besides noble purpose, noble cause. And so he may not have recognized what I was trying to refer to, but, um, even in my answer, he asked me that question in the cross-examination, um, and I referred to verse 21, but I, I probably should have, looking back on it, you always wish you would have said even more, I would have started back in verse 5, where it it says that those who are Israelites, those who belong as adoption as sons, which is what you just now, I think, really well laid out from the Old Testament biblical understanding of sons, that... Um, the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple services, the promises, those are the fathers from whom it is in Christ, according to the flesh, who is overall God blessed forever. Um, and, and, and a reference is, as you've talked about to um, Romans chapter three, verses one and two, where the question, the diatribe question um, or the interlocker we talk about who's asking the question, you know, if anyone can be saved by faith, you know, what's the, what's the benefit of being a Jew? Um, and, and that's what kind of Romans in, in Romans two is talking about how salvation is for for all who believe. And then, the, so the next follow up question that interlocker would ask is, well, that we're, we're the special ones, we're we're the Israelites, and you're trying to say God wants to save Gentiles who believe and confess. And and so the natural the natural response of a Jew would be so. What, what's special about being Jew? In other words, you know, what advantage has the Jew? Is there any benefit of circumcision? Is the is that is that quote there? Um, given that salvation's for all the nations, what's our, what's the benefit of being from Israel? And he says, great in every respect. Verse two, chapter three. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God or the word of God. This is special revelation, um, and this is what God has entrusted or He has given for Israel to do. In other words, God chose Israel the son, the, you know, adoption as sons. And so he's brought them to a point where he wants to accomplish a purpose through them. And this is where I refer back to the original promise to Abraham in, in Genesis 12, three, where he says, I will bless all nations through you um, and through your seed. Right. And, and so he's going to bring the Messiah and the Messiah's message, the plan of redemption through Israel. Now, that doesn't mean every single offspring of Abraham is going to do that. There is going to be a singular line who is actually going to be chosen to actually bring the Messiah. And, and there will be certain people from that Israelite tr- the tribe of Israel who will be selected to carry 
the word and give the authority, be given the authority to speak his truth um, in inspired word. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, That's that, that makes sense, and I've got a couple of follow-up. Yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. I guess my question, a couple of questions, hopefully I keep them in my, my thought process here. Sure. Um, number one, I, I guess my interpretation of those verses is that Paul is talking about the advantages that Israel has as being Jews, not necessarily a command for them to go carry the message or the oracles of God. And, and to them were entrusted the oracles of God. I agree with you. That's special revelation. That's, um, you know, oracles talks about prophecy. Moses coming down the mountain came with the word of God. Um, and so when they were entrusted with that, does it mean that they were entrusted to send that or were they entrusted to obey that as a display nation where God says in Exodus 19, you know, I've chosen you to be a, you know, for my people, for my own possession and a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, um, and so I guess the question is, yes, in Genesis chapter 12, there is a missionary, um, I don't want to say missionary, missionary mandate, but a missionary emphasis that through Abraham's offspring, the entire world would be blessed. And, and obviously you see that go through the lineage of, of Israel all the way up to Jesus, to the apostles. But the real issue is, is in the Old Testament, it was more of a come and see not go and tell until Jesus came with the Great Commission, go and tell. And so I agree with you. I agree with your premise that that there is a mandate to go and tell and send the message to the nation so that they can to trust Christ. But I guess my question is, does Romans 9 in particular specifically and explicitly teach that the that what Israel is elected to is to deliver the very oracles of God in missionary mandate to the nations and then a follow-up question one thing you did say in your in your in your paper or in your um i, I guess in your document on romans 9 was that and i'll quote you here and hope i always hate when you know i'm going to quote you on such and such page but i do want to ask this question this was another question i was going to ask but since you brought up genesis 12 1 through 3 um and this is kind of going further on, on in Romans 9 where he talks about the vessels prepared for mercy. You wrote, the vessels prepared for mercy are all the families of the earth, Genesis 12, 3, who God has promised his blessing from the very beginning. And my question is, if all the nations of the earth are vessels of mercy, how do you make the charge that that does not lead to universalism? Because somebody could say to you, hey, that sure. makes it sound like, Everybody's going to be saved. That le everybody's a vessel of mercy. Everybody is elected in God's plan. All the nations of the earth means every single individual is going to be blessed, and eventually everybody's going to be saved. And so, um, how do you? I guess how do you? I guess how do you answer that? <laughs> That's a lot of questions to throw um, at. So, yeah, uh, and let's take them one at a time. Let's start with the first: um, the the question about the missionary mandate, or you know, where specifically in Romans nine does it talk about the, you know the missionary mandate? And I, I think that the the I think the focus of the noble cause or noble purpose is a little bit broader than just kind of the missionary mandate of go and tell. And yeah. um, and so I, I think it's about making God's power and His goodness known. Um, it's about making all, the whole world come to know who God is and His glorious truth and make make his power known which you see not only beginning in verse five where it, it talks about what they were chosen for all the blessings that you're talking about but the reason he's blessing them is in order to accomplish 
the purpose of making his glory known through them. And I think even a Calvinist, I know would agree with that. It's all about the glory of God. And so, um, and so when you look through the rest of the passage, you see several, several marks here um, that, that I might display my power in you. Speaking of Pharaoh, that, that his, he was lifted up so that he may display his power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all of the earth. Um, the, some of the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay, some pottery for noble purposes, some for common use. There, there it is mentioned again. Um, so he's, he's making, um, what if he did this riches of glory to, to, to make his glory known? Um, and so it, you know, it, and it goes on through in chapter 10 and 11, there's a few other marks there. So in other words, it, it, I know the Calvinist is real big on God's glory being made known. That that's pretty much what I mean by noble cause is that God's making his glory known, not just in his making his power as in his absolute control, meticulous deterministic control over people known, but instead making his glory known in his abundant love and mercy and grace provided for the world blessing all nations um, through uh, the, the promise of the Messiah, that all families of the earth would be blessed through you, Abraham. And that that comes through the lineage, and ultimately, as a, you know, I think most commentators agree that when in Genesis twelve three, he's in reference as a foreshadowing of the coming of Christ, who would be, in a sense, a blessing uh, to all nations. Now, um, and all families of the earth. Now, the the second that which leads right into the next question: How does that not lead to universalism? And that comes really to a the point of our, I think, our division is that when I hear the verse and when I hear the passage say in Romans nine, when Paul says, I will harden some and I will show mercy to others. I don't hear. I will damn some and I will irresistibly save others. That's what the Calvinist, I think, automatically hears when they hear that term. That's not what I hear um, anymore. I used to. And that's why I read the text, because I understand now that he's um, in my in my estimation of the passage that he is saying that God has throughout the history of Israel hardened some rebellious Israelites, and he has blessed other rebellious Israelites. In other words, it, it the the promise and it goes back to Romans chapter three again. Um, if if even if they're unfaithful, and it's what if you read Romans chapter three, it goes on to say, well, God's word has been trusted to Israel. But what if they're unfaithful is the next verse. It has God, and that's exactly what verse 6 is asking in chapter 9 is, okay, has God's word failed? If, if, if the people who are being entrusted to bring the word aren't even believing the word, then has God's word just failed? And, and his answer is obviously no, because God's word doesn't depend upon the faithfulness of Israel. It doesn't depend on any, any, any individual's faithfulness or otherwise. And some examples of this are the golden calf incidents where they are very unfaithful and God could have destroyed them and probably should have based upon justice, just destroyed them at that point. Sure. But you know, the narrative Paul, uh, Moses is the almost like the type of Christ and he intercedes, he stands in the gap and he, he wishes himself accursed for their sake and God relents and he does not condemn, do what they deserve to have done to them. He, he shows mercy to them. Um, and, and, and what's he doing? He's fulfilling so that his name might be proclaimed and his purposes might be fulfilled instead of starting over with Moses and starting a new lineage. I'm going to go ahead and have mercy on these people who deserve to be destroyed. And I am going to show them mercy if I want to show them mercy. And then there's other times throughout the Israel's history where we see God hardening 
the the very the lineage of of God, um, the the Israelites, and, and that's happening right now in in Paul's day, where just like Pharaoh was hardened in the first Passover, Israel they have grown calloused, and God is not showing them mercy this time. He's hardening them this time, and He is blinding them in their rebellion. And in doing so, he's accomplishing redemption through their rebellion. So when I hear he has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens who he wants to harden, what I hear is not automatic. He's, he irresistibly damns some to hell, and he irresistibly makes some change their will and be saved. That's not what I hear. What I hear is if God wants to use Israel, the people who've been entrusted with the very word of God in their unfaithfulness, if God wants to use them in their unfaithfulness and and harden them over in their unfaithfulness and use their lack of belief and their rebellion to bring about his purposes through them, or if he wants to show some of them mercy, like Paul, who is a rebellious Jew, and he wants to um, convince them through external means to, to, to come and to believe and to be an apostle, if he wants to do that, he can do that. And so I don't hear showing mercy and hardening as salvific. I hear it as God accomplishing his original promise and purpose through an unfaithful group of people, Israel. And that, that's a good clarification because I think that's where the huge divide comes. Because when I look at that passage of scripture, he's talking specifically about Pharaoh. He's not talking about a hardened Jew. He's not talking, he's talking about a pagan king, not an Israelite, not a Jew, not someone who had had received the law or anybody that had you know received the oracles of God, but an individual whom God even said in, um, in Exodus 4.21, when you go back to Egypt, See that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And then in Exodus 7, 3, you see the same passage. So when God is hardening Pharaoh, it's not in the context of Paul's discussion here. He's not talking about Israel. He's talking about Pharaoh and hardening. And then also when you get down to the lump of clay, I think your understanding, and maybe you can clarify this, I think from what I understand, you interpret the lump of clay not as a mass of humanity, and some are elected for salvation, and some are passed over for reprobation. You right. see that as hardened Israel that did not fulfill what God had called them to do. Is that is that correct? Yes. All, uh, matter of fact, from verse 1, matter of fact, um, even back into chapter 8, which if you go to some of our podcasts, you can listen sure. to my view of chapter 8 and your view of chapter 8, where it leads right into the fact that he's shifting into a discussion over, um, you know, descendants of, of, of Israel who are unbelievers. So he's shifting from those who are believers um, in chapter eight into chapter eight, that can't be separated from the love of Christ to those who are cut off, who are, who are um, in rebellion and who he'd wish himself a curse for that much like Moses is saying, uh, you know, cut me off, not them. Paul is kind of doing the same thing, which really sounds like Jesus to me is one is willing to sacrifice himself for the sake of, of these people who are, who are in rebellion and cut off. And so there's a genuine love expressed by Paul under inspiration, which I think is a reflection of God's love for these people as well. Um, but to, to get to your, to get to your, your point. Um, yes. I think that everything is about Israel, the nation of Israel all the way through from verse one, all the way down to where he introduces um, the Gentiles um, even said, not only of us, in other words, that's where he's shifting, but of the Gentiles. And so that's where he's bringing the Gentiles into the discussion for the first time to say, this is not only what's happening here and God using and, and bringing about his purposes through um, both rebellious and, 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 and faithful people, 
um, it's, it's not only true of us, it's also true of the Gentiles. And so that's where I think the Gentiles are first introduced into the text. So everything above that verse, I think it's, let me get the 23, I believe it is. Um, no, no, 24. Everything 24, above 24, verses 1 through 24, it's all about Israel. And, and, and that's the whole point. And he's trying to say, has God's word failed with regard to his promise to Israel? And everything he's unpacking is about Israel. Now, why Pharaoh? Pharaoh wasn't an Israelite. So you think, oh, well, that can't be about Pharaoh. Well, G- Paul does this all the time. He references back to types into Old Testament scripture to prove his points here. And so what he's saying is, just like Pharaoh was hardened to bring about the first Passover, Israel is being hardened now to bring about the real Passover. So just as, and and this is not just my opinion, this is, I mean, many commentators relate Pharaoh as as a type of Israel, and and they relate Moses as a type of the, the, the Redeemer, Christ. And so there's a comparison of what's happening in history in the Old Testament times with the whole Exodus event, everything that happens there, as, as Moses coming and representing the Redeemer, or the one who's, who's standing in the gap and calling for his people to be free. And the whole Passover event um, is, is, a, is a foreshadowing and kind of a, a historical telling of the story of what God is going to accomplish um, in, in redemption history. Um, and so Pharaoh is a perfect type or a representation of what, ironically, God does to the very people he rescues from Pharaoh. And so he rescues Israel from Pharaoh, and then he, because he raised them up for the very purpose of making his power and bringing about his, 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 his noble cause through him, just in the same way he does that with Israel. He brings them into power. He brings them into a place where they have... Um, the ability through being um, judicially hardened in their rebellion to bring about the very redemptive purposes that God has foretold in, in the Old Testament. Does that help? to, to yeah, that, that helps. And, and I guess when I look at the typology that you just used, I've never heard that Pharaoh is a type of Israel. Obviously, Moses is a type of Christ, but I would see you know, you have to be careful when you get into to New Testament typology because some of it's explicit and some of it's implicit. Um, but if you look at Pharaoh in Egypt, that was a symbol of slavery. And they were redeemed by the blood of the, of the Passover lamb. And when you just said, um, now, I think you said something like, it's a picture of now the, the, the new Passover. Um, but in the context of what Romans is saying, the Passover has already happened. Jesus as the Passover lamb has already been sacrificed. And so it's, they're not waiting for a Passover um, it, it seems like from contextually, when he talks about individually Esau, individually Jacob, he talks about individual um, Pharaoh, and then he talks about one lump. It seems like all throughout it, he's talking about specific individuals. Um, and I don't know if Paul is specifically, or maybe he's implicitly making a typology that Pharaoh represents Israel. Um, I don't know of anywhere else in the scriptures where Pharaoh is ever referred to as Israel. He's always referred to as, you know, an image of bondage, even an image maybe of even Satan keeping God's people in bondage. Um, but I've never heard the typology that Pharaoh is a type of Israel. And so I'm just curious. I've never heard that before. So that's an interesting 
that's an interesting take to me. Yeah, I, I, I know there's several commentators. I can't. Uh, I know N.T. Wright makes the connection, and, and, and I'm trying to think of some others that would be more in the mainstream sure. of Southern Baptist. Uh, you know, uh, that would that would make that connection between um, the symbolism of Pharaoh. But even even if um, even if a Calvinist were to deny that that was Paul's intention, I don't think there's any anyone who could deny the fact that both Pharaoh and Israel were judicially hardened by God in order to bring about their relative Passovers. Um, Pharaoh was hardened by God, as, as we all know, in order to ensure that the Passover was brought to pass according to God's plan and purpose and to make his power known through the rebellious um, actions of Pharaoh. Um, and, 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 and I think, and I think you, it might've been you. It might've, I can't remember. I've listened to some of the podcasts. It might've yeah. been you said this. It talked about how, um, you know, it, it, God didn't have to make Pharaoh not want to give up his slave labor. He, he wanted obviously just naturally to keep his slave labor, but, um, but turning the, the Nile into blood might've convinced him. And, and, and what God wanted to accomplish was to make his power over all the, the Egyptian gods that each one of the plagues, according to a lot of scholars, represented one of their gods demonstrating his power. Was that you that talks about that? No, but I I would agree with that. Yeah. And so it's, so he's, he's, he's literally blinding Pharaoh from seeing the truth is the illustration I use of the police officer. You know, he's not, the police officer's not making the speeder speed. He's simply blinding him from his presence. So he'll continue to do what he wants to do. Same, same with Pharaoh. He's simply blinding Pharaoh in whatever means he's using. I don't know if it's external means, uh, maybe like the movie has a, a woman, you know, whispering into to Pharaoh's ear saying, oh, you, that, that's just magic. You're more powerful than he is and right. things like that. And so using a woman or using a whatever, you know, external means to, 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 to blind him from what's obviously being revealed in every one of those plagues. And I think this go, I'm sorry. I think this is where you tend to make Arminians really mad because you sound very Calvinistic in the sense of your definition of judicial hardening. Um, God's can sovereignly overcome someone's will to accomplish his purpose. Um, and so do, do you believe that Pharaoh had a choice? Could he have at some point repented and done the right thing or had God's determination to harden him? Was that a done deal? And the same thing with, I guess my question is, with your definition of judicial hardening, is there a point where a person can come back from that, or is it a done deal? Um, how, how, how far does it go? Um, what does that look like? Sure. Because, I, yeah, go ahead and unpack that for me. Yeah, um, in the case of Pharaoh, um, you know, I, I, I believe that his will was already in rebellion, uh, full rebellion against God, and and he had rejected God and had grown calloused over time in his in his rebellion towards the God of Israel. And and thus it wasn't God actively making him or he wasn't born that way or something of nature where he could not have done otherwise throughout his life. What what we're arguing, and, and there's an article on Sociology 101 that's called Judicial Hardening, God's Sinless Use of Sinful Means, where um, I kind of compare mine and some other scholars, more deterministic scholars' perspective on hard passages like that, where we do believe, at least you know, from my perspective, we do believe God does harden um, people's hearts, but we don't believe that means that He compatibilistically um, determines their their choices to where they could not have been otherwise. Instead, the way we would describe that is more like the analogy that I, I talked about with the the police officer. Another analogy I give that may help those who are listening that, that are better at 
visualizing things than, than like I am. Um, you know, my daughter is she she walks into the kitchen and um, and she was just told you can't have any cookies. And her mother went into the back room and this actually happened. And um, she's probably three or four at the time. And her mother said, no, you cannot have any cookies before dinner. And so her mother went on the bathroom and shut the door. And so she thinks, well, I'm safe now. But I, where I was sitting, I could see through a crack in the window and <laughs> perfectly. And um, and she she walks in there right from the cookie jar and she looks back and forth. And I know as a parent what she's thinking. There's no doubt in my mind she's about to steal a cookie. And she doesn't know I'm present. She doesn't know I'm watching at all. And so at that moment in time, as a parent, I know for you know relative certainty that she is about to commit a crime. She's about to do sin. She's about to disobey. Now, had I just revealed my presence, had I just <clears throat> you know just done, just done something to let her know I'm here, I'm watching you, she wouldn't. She would have you know no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to steal when my daddy's watching, um, and and she would have moved on. Um, but I didn't say anything. I just stayed quiet. In a sense, I blinded her from knowing the truth of my presence. And so I'm not causing her to be tempted. I am not tempting her. I am not in any way giving her a nefarious will from birth or any of those kinds of things. I am simply staying back. Um, and, and that's a lot of things that we talk about. The permission of God is that God allows or he permits, meaning he stays back and he allows for freedom. And that's what, what is our theodicy. That's how we explain the, the cause and pro- problems of evil in the world. And so when Esther chooses to reach forward and grab the cookie, then I step in and I'm able to accomplish my purpose of teaching her a lesson of disobedience. Mm-hmm. And I, I purposefully hid myself from her and remained hidden from her so as to accomplish a better purpose through her rebellion. I think that's a really good analogy to say what God is doing to Pharaoh and later to Israel um, in order to accomplish his better purpose through their rebellion, he's hiding the truth from them temporarily. Now, in the case of Israel, you may say, well, does that mean that if God hardens them judicially, does that mean they can't be saved? Well, I think um, Paul answers that real clearly over into Romans 9, because he asks the question, have they stumbled beyond recovery? By no means, verse 11 says. He says, my, my, my very work as an apostle to the Gentiles is I hope that that work will provoke those fellow countrymen that I, I prayed for in verse 1 through 3 of chapter 9 that I, that I would wish myself a cut off for. I pray that my ministry to the Gentiles will provoke them to envy, meaning once they see the Gentiles' lives change, they may reconsider their, their condition. They may reconsider their beliefs, and they may, they may be grafted back in. They may leave their unbelief, as he goes on to say in verse 21 and 23, um, where he's ho- his hope is, and I would think that he wouldn't have a hope if the, he thought of them as reprobates being judicially hardened for certainty and being cut off without any hope of salvation. He wouldn't say that he hoped for them to be grafted back in and to be saved, um, but instead that he's, his hope is that once redemption is accomplished and once the the, the Gentiles are brought into the church and are established within the church, that through that establishment within the church of the Gentiles and the, the change of lives, that that would provoke those Jews that are hardened. And that's what I think Paul is concluding by saying in verse 32 of chapter 11, he is bound all to disobedience in order to show mercy to all. And that, that mercy is not universalism, like we asked before, and I think I'll answer that question, but let me, let me, let me if I haven't, 
is that showing mercy doesn't mean that it, it means you'll effectually be saved. What we mean by showing mercy is giving opportunity, uh, provisional atonement, a provision of, of the, the ability to accept the gift or reject the gift. And so that's showing mercy because God doesn't have to provide that gift at all to anyone. And sure. so that, that's how we would explain that. Yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot for me to chew, <laughs> chew on. Um, that's a lot. One, one of the things that I, th- and, and this is going back into Romans 8, and I think I listened to one of your podcasts, which relates to Romans 9, is that your view of calling and, and the whole golden chain of redemption is more geared towards a Jewish audience. Is that what I'm understanding? And that, that it doesn't talk about individual election and that, um, you know, the calling there? Because I guess when I look at Romans 8, I look at effectual calling as a Calvinist that God has called us effectually to salvation. And you go into Romans nine and you look at um, verse 11, though they were not born and had done nothing either good or bad, nor that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Um, I guess the big fundamental difference between our views is in, in our view we see that God's word has not failed because it was not God's intention from the very beginning to save every individual Israelite, but only those whom he had chosen before the foundation of the world that would be considered the remnant of election. Whereas your view would be the issue that God is electing them to is not to individual salvation, but to, and hopefully I'm understanding you, to carry or advance the noble cause. How does that relate to calling and how does that relate to Romans 8? Sure. Um, yeah, the, the Romans 8 is a good question. Um, and, and let me let me reference back to the first part of your question where you were asking about Paul. Um, um, I think Paul, oftentimes he witnesses, you know, in verse uh, chap- chapter um, 28 of Acts, verse 23, it says, He witnessed to them from morning till evening, explaining about the kingdom of God from the law of Moses and from the promise he, he, uh, prophets he tried to persuade them about Jesus. Some were convinced by what he said, and others would not believe. Um, the reason I point that out is because Paul is known for, and there's about three or four other texts that are just like that, where it, Paul is known for reaching back into the law and the Old Testament in order to prove his point. And right. so it's not saying that it's only to an Israelite audience necessarily, because him him proving things through prophecy of old, even though that prophecy has to do with Israel and his, his promises to Israel, it still is applicable to us today because what is true in many ways of what God has done with Israel is also true of us. And so what I would say to your answer um, is that God, um, Paul, I believe, was teaching both Jews and Gentiles alike um, in the, the church of Rome. He was saying to them, God, um, you know, there, there, there's a lot of groans and moans and problems because of the fall of the world. And you, you, you need to understand, listeners, um, that God has always been faithful and God will continue to always be faithful to those who are who love him and are called according to his purpose. Verse 28. Um, and it's not just this intuitive knowledge that they just they just know that God's going to be good, but they know it based upon p- previous experience. And, and so it's almost in sense, in, in my estimation of Romans 8, that, that Paul is saying, look at those God foreknew. God foreknew um, Elijah and Moses and all these other men of old and how God dealt with the Israelites. That's what I mean by prognosco is those formerly known in former times. Look at how he's, he, he brought about his purpose and his plan through them. Therefore, we can know because of this. Therefore, we can know. 
this is how God's going to treat us. This is how God is going to be faithful to us today, believers who, 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 um, who trust in his promise. And so that's the, the Romans eight is flowing into that. And then it goes right into nine, which is saying, well, what about those who aren't believing the very people who are entrusted with his word, aren't believing it. So is it failed? And that's where the answer comes back and says, you know, God's word one hasn't failed because for really for two major reasons, not every single Israelite has been entrusted to carry the word. And two, just because you're Israelite doesn't mean you're automatically going to be saved because that was the assumption of that day. Right. They just assumed, hey, by being in the lineage, I'm going to be saved. And right. that's what we, we believe. Right. And that's the, and that's the fundamental difference. What the, the two things you just said, we would agree with number two, but we would not see number one in that text. Cause you just said, has God's word not failed because not all Israel in the text says not all Israel is belongs to Israel. And you just said, not that not all Israel belongs to Israel, but not all Israel was, um, com- what'd you say? Commissioned or charged or elected to, to carry that. Is that, is that what your view says? Well, and that's, and that's part of the, the presumption the, the, that you're bringing to the text, at least in mine too. I'm not saying you have a presumption and I don't, we both, sure. um, the presumption, because when I hear Israel, I think those entrusted to carry the redemptive plan of God to bring the Messiah and his message. That's what I hear. You hear Israel, those God, the true Israel is those God has effectually chosen to save before the foundation of the world. So we both hear Israel and we both think two different things. And so when he says not everyone is of Israel is of Israel, what I hear him saying is not everyone who is a lineage in the line of Israel is necessarily chosen to carry out the purpose that Israel was chosen to carry out. That's what I hear him saying. And so you see what I'm saying? We, and you, what you hear him saying is that not everyone who is of the lineage of Israel has necessarily been chosen to be effectually saved by, by God. And, and I don't hear that. And I get, yeah. And, and that's, that's, and I'm glad you clarified that because that's a really, I think that's really beneficial to understand. And it goes back to really the ultimate question is that's that frames this whole thing is why is Paul grieved? He's grieved because his countrymen are going to hell. They're, they're being cut off. Is he grieved that they're not carrying the noble purpose, or is he grieved that they're not saved? And so when I look at not all Israel's Israel, I look at it as a salvific issue that they're not saved. Not that they're not carrying the noble purpose, but the reason Paul's grieving is because he sees his, his fellow Jews around him not accepting the gospel and dying in unbelief and spending eternity in hell. And then he goes on to say, well, that's, that's why he's grieved. But then he goes on to say, that's not been God's plan from the beginning. God's plan from the beginning has been not to save every single Israel because not all Israel's Israel. Um, and I, and so that's the way that, I guess the Calvinist lens that you like to say, we, we bring to it in your lens. Uh, I think it's very helpful for, for our listeners to, to look at those two differences. Cause those are, I think that's pretty fundamental, a fundamental way we come to the text. What, what you just articulated. Yes. Um, and yeah, I think, I th- and that's what, that's the reason I chose, I wanted to do this because I think we're really getting to the heart of the differences between our two views. And, and again, we're not really debating each other. What I love about this is we're just discussing it and we can disagree with each other and say, Oh, I see what you're saying, but I disagree. Well, I think to answer your, your, your question just now, I agree with what Paul was saying. He's, he's grieving that they were cut off. But then in verse five, he's saying, because these are the very people who've been entrusted with the oracles of God. And so he's he's shifting there in a sense of saying, I'm grieving that they've been cut off. Now, here's the big question for a Calvinist. Have they been cut off in the sense that they have been reprobated from eternity past? Or 
are they have they been cut off in the sense that I believe that they're being cut off, which means they've been judicially hardened from the revelation, the special revelation of God by which they could be saved. And so and, and the fact that the very people who are cut off could be, quote unquote, grafted back in in verse uh, chapter 11 proves to me that Paul is not talking about the reprobate of the Calvinistic worldview. Instead, he's talking about true Israel being cut off because, one, they have rebelled and they have rejected freely, libertarianly free, uh, obviously from our perspective, they have rejected the clear revelation of God for generations and have grown calloused, according to several texts, but um, Acts 28, 27, and 28 is a clear distinction of that when he says, for these people's hearts has become calloused, they hardly hear with their ears. They have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. The dichotomy between the two that Paul's setting up is between the Israelites who have become callous, not that they're born in a total disabled condition, but instead that they have grown in a condition by which they can't even recognize the revelation, the truth of who God is anymore because they have their um, self-righteous lenses on and their, and their religiosity worldview of, of law. They can't even recognize their own Messiah because of that. And God is giving them over to that. He's blinding them in that condition temporarily to accomplish redemption through them. He's, he's bringing the cross, the Calv- Calvary, through their unbelief and through their blindness and yeah. taking the message to the Gentiles. And it's not because the Gentiles are less sinful. They're probably more sinful as far as morality is concerned. They're they're horribly bad people, but they're not calloused, meaning they're not hardened, unable to see, hear, understand, and turn so as to be forgiven, as the text actually verbatim says. And so that's the dichotomy I think is being set up in in the scripture uh, with Romans chapter 9, especially especially as he ends Romans chapter 9, where he, he literally points out the difference between Israel who is attaining, um, um, uh, not attaining salvation because they're pursuing it by law, running after it, working for it, and, and the Gentiles who are pursu- who are pursuing it through faith and are actually attaining it. Um, I think that's well, me, you said yeah, that's good. Let me answer your question about how I would, I would understand being cut off. When Paul says in verse 3, I wish that I myself were cursed, it's the Greek word anathema. Um, and so when we say cut off, Anathema, that's, that's a salvific term that he uses in Galatians chapter 1. If somebody comes and preaches another gospel, let him be anathema. Let him be accursed. Let him be eternally condemned. And so we would say that there are Jews who are cut off in a sense that salvifically they are going to hell. Not, and your view would be they, they're, your view of cut off is they're hardened, but they could come back. Is that, am I understanding that correctly? Yes, judi- yeah, judicially, I, mean, I would say judicially hardened. There's a, there's a distinction between, just real quick, there's a distinction between just being plain old stubborn and you just deciding for yourself. That's kind of the, the Pharaoh hardening his own heart. Uh, there's a sense in which somebody can just choose freely to say, I don't believe that or I reject that. Then there's, then there's judicial hardening, which is actually like what I was saying with my daughter, where God is actually making a conscious effort to send them a spirit of stupor, as it says in chapter 11, to right. mind them from the revelation so that as so that they couldn't they they can't believe right. uh, keeping them from that by hiding revelation from them that but, makes in, sense. but in your view that's not in de- that's not definite there could be a possibility that a judicially hardened Jew could come to the point of repentance yes that the hardening can be lifted it's a hardening okay so and God would do God, and how 
what would be the purpose? How would that happen, and, and who does that? Does the person do that, or does God do that? Yeah, the, the, as far as the judicial hardening is concerned, it's it's simply a blinding, um, you know, uh, of the truth revelation by which they can reveal. How how do they know unless they they're, they're told? But so once they're told, then the the assumption on our on our interpretation is once they're told, they are able to respond. But if they're told a bunch of times and they keep rejecting it, rejecting it, rejecting it, and they grow callous to it by their own free will, then eventually God can just stop showing them. He can stop asking. In other words, you know, I've invited this guy to the party 16 times and he said no 16 times. So he's not going to even see the invitation anymore. I'm not even going to show it to him anymore. And I'm going to use him in his rebellion and his actions of rebellion. I'm going to use those actions to accomplish a bigger purpose of redemption through their, their unbelief and through their rebellious actions, i.e. crucify him. So he accomplishes that through that unbelief. And then there's no reason to continue to harden him once he's accomplished his purpose through them. So he, he lets them go back to their normal, you know, self-hardened ways. But that's where Paul was saying, you know, that's why I hope to provoke them. They haven't stumbled beyond recovery. They can recover. It doesn't mean they will. It just means they can. Um, and and once they see the provoking of the Jews, uh, the Gentiles, I mean, the, the Gentiles are saved. You see this prostitute all of a sudden, you know, being a faithful mother okay, maybe this God thing, maybe this is right. Maybe that was the Messiah and they could be provoked and, and, and grafted back in. Right. And I think this goes back to a fundamental difference. And we've talked about this in our last podcast, which is not specifically present in Romans 9, but it's the, it's the, the view of total inability. Um, and it goes back to what a Calvinist would say, um, you know, if the, if the gospel is presented to somebody, they are not able to understand that unless God does a prior work of, regenerating grace in them. Whereas you would probably say a judicially hardened Jew or a judicially hardened person, if given enough light of the gospel, they would have it within their own will to be able, because that gospel is powerful enough, that light is powerful enough to turn and accept it. Would that be an accurate description of your, of your view? Yeah, I, I think, I think that's a pretty good description. Um, and it's not saying that people can believe without the grace of God. It's saying right. that the grace of God is the revelation. In other words, that's, that's what they're being cut off from. That's what Israel's being cut off from. If you're cut off from the special revelation, the gracious special revelation of God, you can't believe that, which you haven't been, you're not being shown. Uh, so you're saying that they're cut off from the revelation where Paul just says, I wish that I was accursed and cut off. Um, and I think that's an, an important well, distinction. Cut off from the salvation and the means of it. I mean, that's it's all it's all in one. Yeah. Yeah. And then one thing I, I do want to say is um, I'm, I appreciate the fact that you said that there has to be grace involved because I think one of the charges that I hear a lot of people, you know, even I just heard somebody the other day, I was listening to him and they were talking about Adam Harwood and they still called him the, the semi-Pelagianist um, <laughs> Adam Harwood. And, and after listening to that podcast of yours with him, and by the way, he's a gracious man. I, I really appreciate his his attitude. But I would never. The one thing we've got to stop doing is labeling the charge that you guys are semi-Pelagian or you somehow you guys don't believe in grace. You're you, we're just defining. Let's just put it this way: we are both bringing grace to the table. We are just defining how far and how extensive and what that grace looks like. Is would that be a fair way to describe our differences? Oh, absolutely. Um, and and I, I, I you can't. I can't tell you how much I appreciate hearing another Calvinist say that. And I think that's so vital to understand the differences between those things. And, and really my view is not that much different than many Calvinists um, in the sense that there, if you look up gospel regeneration, because there's so many passages which talk about the power of the gospel 
and, right. and all those kinds of things. There's some, and you may be one of them, some Calvinists who argue that it's through the gospel that God regenerates, that it's through the preaching of God's word that, you know, you can go through an order to salute us and, and talk about how, what order it all happens in, but ultimately, whether it's simultaneous or, you know, immediate afterwards, you know, millisecond afterwards, or what all those, those discussions go on, the, the, the point of the argument is that the regeneration comes through the gospel. Well, I'm arguing the same thing, but from the more "quote unquote" Arminian type perspective, to say it's through the gospel that God uh, graciously enables someone to respond, um, and thus, if someone's fallen, then the appeal to be reconciled from that fallenness, i.e., the gospel, is sufficient to accomplish its purpose. And that's that's key. Um, and and I would I would agree with you halfway. I would say the gospel is sufficient, but because of deadness and inability the Holy Spirit has to come in the Word and Spirit and do that work of regenerating, liberating, taking a heart of stone and a heart of flesh out, and that just the bare gospel by itself is not enough to do the work because of spiritual deadness. There has to be the Holy Spirit coming in regeneration. And you would probably define that nuanced a little bit differently, but I think that is a fundamental difference too, that you guys would say, the, the preaching of the gospel, in and of, the bare preaching of the gospel in and of itself is enough light, is enough illumination, is enough power to give any sinner the opportunity to respond in faith because they are responsible. Is, is that correct? Yeah. yeah, no, I think you're, you're, you're as good as I am at, at defining that. And that's always a good thing to be able to say. So, um, um, and I, I'll, let me ask you a question sure. um, on that point, kind of speaking towards kind of regeneration before my belief in those kinds of points. There's a couple of passages that I often refer to in defense of the opposite. Um, one, John twenty thirty one, which says these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so it's that by believing you may have life. And so it's believing comes prior to, in this, at least in this particular passage, comes prior to life. Um, the other passage, and you can answer either one or both at the same time, the other passage that I often go to, to to support our understanding of repentance prior to regeneration, um, faith, faith-based repentance prior to regeneration, um, is, is that Ezekiel 18, where uh, the text says, um, cleanse yourselves of these sins, repent and live. And, and, uh, and even that says, it says, um, confess your wrongdoings and, and, th- and thus receive a new heart and a new spirit. And Ezekiel is oftentimes the passage that Calvinists go to. It's Ezekiel 32 or 38. I can't remember. But where it talks about how God will give us a new spirit and new heart. Well, Ezekiel 18 talks about the way you get a spirit and new heart is through repentance. Is that by admitting that you can't save yourself, admitting that you have not fulfilled the law, admitting that you are not righteous in and of yourself, admitting that you need the work of another, that is what gives you a new heart. And and so repent and live, not you will live so as to repent. That's right. That would be my argument against. Right, yeah. right. And, and those are good verses. Um, and I, I guess the one thing I heard, I heard another podcast you had, and I was, I was actually, I was working out when I was listening to it. And um, I, I actually verbally, if I worked out while I was listening to all my podcasts, I would be a stud. Well, <laughs> well, I doing that and, more. <laughs> and I found myself like, Oh my goodness, I can't believe he said that. And so what, what I wanted to interact with, and this is in relation to this topic is, is, is John chapter one where um, 
and I'm not nitpicking here, so don't think I'm nitpicking, but um, I just wanted to, to clarify what I believe, and, I, and you kind of left out half the verse um, as far as, um, and I can't remember which one it was, but it was in um, a couple podcasts back, but it's the, um, where is it here? Um, da, 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 John 1, is it? yeah, John 1, 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Verse 13, who were born, not of blood, nor the flesh, or the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So you've got, and I think I remember you saying that, you know, we, we believe first and then we're born, um, based upon that passage of Scripture. Mm-hmm. But in the Greek text, when, who were born is in a, the perfect tense, and believe is in the aorist tense, and when you look at the tenses of those words working together, especially in 1 John, um, the, the way that the Greek text is structured is that the being born comes prior in time to the believing. And so the reason that you believe and become a child of God is because God has born you. God has caused you to be born again. Uh, you see that in 1 John too. The reason we believe is because we've been born of God. And so a Calvinist would argue saying, you know, from the Greek text, the way that those verbs are used is that you know, contextually, grammatically, God causing us to be born again is what generates our actual faith. And so just just a, a point to, to bring up out there. Well, um, I, I'll, uh, I'll give you my response to, to, to John, but I would love to hear how you respond to the, the two passages I just mentioned, too. Sure. Just, not, just knowing how you respond to the, the repent yeah. and live type of order. But um, give, me, give me those again just so I can. Yeah, um, John 20. 31. Okay. And, and then Ezekiel 18 and it's the last three or four verses of Ezekiel 18. I think it's 29 through 31. Okay. Um, where it, it lays out how you get a new heart and a new spirit. And then it requires that no one perishes, but all come to repentance. Sure. Um, and then he asks, you know, then he says, repent Israel and live. Okay. So the, yeah, those two passages, but let me, in this passage, let me back up to verse 10, because I think it gives a better context. It says, uh, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Now, who is that referring to when he says his own did not receive him? Because obviously that's not re- reference to, quote-unquote, the Calvinistic elect. No, no, I wouldn't. Okay. That would the Jews, I would say. The Jews, right, Israel. So I think that's really important because that's the context of the rest of what he's saying. So he's saying, I came to Israel and Israel did not receive me mm-hmm. yet to those who did receive him. So that, that's the next line. Those who did receive him. So not Israel didn't, but those who did receive him. Right. They're given the right to become children of God. So everybody thought these were the children of God, according to the, Old Testament laws and the way everybody thought the elect of God are Israel. So that's who I came to and they didn't receive me, but those who did receive me, they've become, they've been given the right to become children of God. So you have these people over here who are assumed to be born as children of God because they're Israelites. And then people over here are saying, no, no, no. Those who receive him are the ones who are given the right to become children of God. And then from that context, he goes on to say, um, those who receive him, 
those who believe in his name. So receive him and believe in his name prior to given, even be given the right to become. So you can't even become a child. You can't even be given the right to become a child unless you first receive and believe. Those come prior to even be given the right to become. And so the way that I would interpret the rest of that is to say that children born not of natural descent, speaking of those, again, back to the first verse, verse 12, 11, Israel, not born natural descent, nor of husband's will, that's still a reference to Israel because it was the Israelites and through the, the father, the husband, that the, the family was seen to be um, uh, in a covenant home and, and redeemed. And um, of husband's husband's will, uh, nor of human decision. Now, I saved human decision for last, even though it's not in that order. It's actually natural descent, human decision, or husband's will. I think all three of those refers to back to verse 11, the people he came to rejected him. Because, and the reason I say human decision, is human decision refers to those who are willing and trying to strive after the law, as Romans 9 31 and following talks about those who are pursuing righteousness through works, those who are pursuing it through their, their will, their striving, their working. Um, that's a will. That's a, it took a lot. You think about how, how much work it took and willing and willpower it took to be a Jew and a, and a Pharisee. You had the meticulous, the mission on the Talmud and the laws and piled up. It was a decision that was a willpower type of a decision. That's what I believe Paul is, uh, or John here is referring to, is that it's not the natural descendants. It's not those who are willing after and husband's will and being in part of the right family or descendant. Those are the ones that are automatically saved. It's not about being, it's about being born of God, which we all agree, only God's the one who rebirths us. But who is the ones he's given the right to be reborn? Those who believe and those who receive. So that's how I would interpret that text. Um, well, John... John twenty thirty one is a difficult passage of scripture just because of the textual variant in that word believe um, that you may believe um, some that's a debate that's a debated issue as far as the, the Greek there is it that you may begin to believe is it written towards lost people that they may begin to start believing um, and there's a debate whether that's actually um, you know that type of verb or is it that you may continue to believe assuming that you're already saved. And so I think you have to come to that verse determining which, which one you're going to look. But Jesus says, um, these are written, that the scripture's written, this book is written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Um, the, the question that we've got to ask, and I'd have to actually you know, do a little bit more study on the Greek there as far as by believing, uh, what is that? the instrument by which you have life, or is it evidence that you already had life, um, that you may have life? Um, is life, he's talking about there, is that eternal life, or is that regenerative life? Um, and so I think probably in the context of John, he uses both terms, because John 3 talks about regeneration, being born again, but he also, in the context of John, he talks about life uh, being eternal life. And so I I guess the question of interpretation is, is he talking about if you believe order salutis, then you are regenerated? Or is he making a general salvific statement saying that believing in Christ, you will have eternal life in his name? Um, and I would probably say without doing a lot of study that it was, it's probably the second that he's basically making a summary statement of the entire book 
um, saying that believing in Jesus results in eternal life in his name, not necessarily an argument that um, believing precedes regeneration. Um, so that would be my answer to that, my best attempt to do that. Um, and the other passage you said was Ezekiel um, 18, like towards the end. Are you still there? Yes, Ezekiel um, um, 18, I think beginning in verse 29 and following, somewhere around there. I don't, I don't need to pull it up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, therefore, our judge will have, okay, re, okay. repent and turn from all your transgression, lest iniquity be returned. Cast away from all your transgressions that you have committed and make, yourself, make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of, of, of anyone, declares the Lord. Turn and live. Um, turn and live. And that's a difficult passage. Um, make yourselves a new heart. Um, this is one of those times where if, you, if you're a Calvinist and you come to verses like that, you'd, you'd rather throw them out because they don't go with your theology because it sounds like you're doing something to create in yourself a new heart and a new spirit. Um, but it's something that you do. Before, uh, before you go on, um, let, me, let me, and this may actually let you off the hook to some degree because my, I don't know, my translation says it a little bit different than make your make your. Uh, a new heart, but mine says, repent, turn away from all your offenses, then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourselves of all the offenses you have committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. In other words, it seems to be saying that by repenting, ridding yourself of all offenses, you will get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. Repent and live. Yours says turn and live. And, you know, same, same difference, obviously, but repent, repent and live. Um, and this is where one of those things where you, you, you've got to look at the um, analogy of faith and look at the entirety of Ezekiel. And in, in the previous, in chapter 36, later on, he talks about how God's going to do this. Um, and so you've got both issues here. And so they, they both have to be true. Um, how those interact together, um, it becomes difficult because um, the ESV says, make yourselves a new heart. And if you were just to read that at face value, it may sound like you have the power in of yourselves to just create this new heart within you. Um, and then that obviously, you know, I don't even think you would believe that. Um, but well, then later on in the, way, 30, the way that I would explain it to harmonize the two is to say, yes, he does give us the new heart, but in order for us to get the new heart, we must repent from the old heart. In other words, we must repent saying, I've got a bad heart. I need, I need a new one. Right. So by admitting you have a bad heart, he will. And the, the analogy I've used on the podcast before is the heart surgeon. It's yeah. not saying I'm, I'm, I'm taking this scalpel and going, okay, get my heart out. And here, here I'm going to do it myself. It's saying the heart surgeon comes to me and says, you have a bad heart. And right. I have a choice to say, give me a new one. Or, or to say, no, my heart's great. Look how good I am, and, and, and you know, work work without him and try to make it without him. That that's the analogy I would use to describe and, and hopefully bring a balance between those two texts. Sure. And I would say a Calvinist, and, and I would probably even speak for James White here. He might say, and I'm speaking for him, but a Calvinist would say that the person who has the heart problem hates the surgeon, doesn't want anything to do with the surgeon, and rebels against the surgeon, and doesn't want, can even accept the fact that the surgeon wants to help because he's in dead rebellion against the surgeon. So he's not even in a position to want the help because he's a dead rebel sinner that, that, that can't even accept it until it's done to him to liberate him, to make him want to have a new heart. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. And, and of course I, I disagree. I, I don't think it, it comes to inability issue with regard to it. Go, I don't think the scripture ever goes that far. 
um, is to say that someone becomes unable to willingly do otherwise when the revelations made clear. Um, now they can become unable to do otherwise if they eventually get so calloused and hardened in their ways and, and even get to a point where God gives them over and even judicially hardens them for a purpose, then, then yeah, then, then they would become totally disabled because they wouldn't have anything to, to convince them to do otherwise. They wouldn't have uh, anything drawing them back. But, um, but that, that's where I would disagree with that kind of assessment. I don't think the scripture ever goes so far as to say someone's born in such a callous condition that they can't respond to the clear revelation of God willingly, uh, that their nature is that such that they can't recognize their own sinfulness when it's revealed clearly to them by God's gracious revelation. And I think that's the, again, that's a big difference between our two views. Absolutely. So, but mine's right. So that makes, <laughs> I had to throw that in there for you. You know, just get a little bit of, you know, I think we got to get you mad a little bit, Sean. I can't, I can't get you mad at all, except for calling me an animal when we first started. And I can't get. No, you I'm a, I'm a pretty laid back Colorado guy, but I, I guess you, you know, I can get fired oh, times. Oh, Colorado! Ah, yeah, yeah, we know why you're calm. Yeah. So, but I can I can get riled up, but just <laughs> I don't. Yeah, but it, but it's got to be you know. You have marijuana jokes all the time in Colorado, don't you? Oh yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's sad. <laughs> Real calm with that. Um, yeah, I, I guess um, where there are more questions with regard to Romans nine because obviously that's the that's the original discussion. Not that this has been off topic. It's right. I think it's very integral to the topic. Um, now, some some would say anytime you travel outside the text <laughs> to, right, right. to support your interpretation, that you're running from exegetical commentary and hermeneutics. But I think. Uh, yeah. I think we know better than that. You can refer to other texts to help you interpret the text in question. Well, and I would say this, the, the, the benefit of what we've just done is that we've had a discussion and it's not been so tied to a time limit and it's not been tied to having to give 20 minutes and then cross-examination. We're able to go off on tangents and go, hey, what about this? What about that? And, and I think for the most part, you know, the reason we're doing this, like you said at the very beginning, is for our listeners to get more educated and to understand our views. And so I think when we go off on tangents and deal with these things, um, it would be like what you do in a classroom as you're teaching and a student asks you a question and you go off and you want to answer that. And so it's just kind of the way the conversation has gone. And so I think it's been, it's been helpful. Oh, I agree completely. Um, I think also um, what might help pe- people as well is if, if someone is, uh, you know, struggling with interpretations of texts that, that differ um, to, to realize that this is a discussion that's been going on for generations among much more intelligent people than I ever hoped to be. Um, but that still, despite those differences, there have been people who have been able to work together and to do ministry together and to uh, serve with one another in the faith. Um, because when you really break it down, the distinctions, though they're obvious in this, these kinds of discussion, um, I imagine if you and I were at a church together, they would very rarely even affect how we would minister or how we would reach out to somebody or how we would help somebody. At least, and, you know, some people insist that the, the theology that you hold to really affects um, a lot of things. And and I guess it could, and, and either, either side could be taken to seed and right. taken far, for example, on, on our side, you could get the Joel Olsteins of the world. Um, you can become so mamby-pamby and right. easy believism and kind of this 
let's manipulate people to get them to make a decision and this kind of decisionism and and let's get them to say a prayer, repeat after me and raise your hand, close your eyes and and all that kind of stuff, which probably turns me off more than than um, even a lot of Calvinists are turned off to it because, you know, I actually believe that that could prevent somebody from from um, coming to know the, the Lord and it could affect their eternal destiny. Whereas a Calvinist would say, you know, God's going to save his own regardless of those means and those um, crooked people. And so I get more, I should anyway, as a non-Calvinist, get more upset at, at manipulation and, and false doctrines than even the Calvinist, because if my, tr- if my, if my view is right, then those people could actually be hindering people from coming to know Christ. And so, whereas the Calvinist could say, at least I'm mad, but Hey, you know, God's purpose is going to be accomplished anyway. And so um, the reason I mention all of that is that that can be a seed that our side goes to and becomes um, manipulative and evangelism and becomes, um, you know, very shallow in certain areas of, of teaching. And on the other side, Calvinists can become um, too legalistic, possibly maybe even hyperish, um, even saying, well, evangelism doesn't even matter because God's going to save whoever's going to save anyway. So let's just eat, drink and be merry. And that's obviously extreme. Most of us are where you and I, I think are where we're both, Southern Baptist, we hold to most of the same things with regard to the inerrancy of Scripture, the 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 truth of who of Christ is, of um, the Trinity, uh, the true nature of who He is, all the things that we value and hold dear as Southern Baptists: the autonomy of of the local church, the priesthood of every believer, um, eternal security, all of those things that we really hold to as, as, as Southern Baptists. We would hold in common in our um, and, and we're, we're balanced, I think, enough within our doctrinal systems not to go to either one of those extremes. And, and if that's the case, why, why do we need to cause a schism and a split within the church right. over, over relatively small differences? Well, and I, and, I, and I totally agree with you. I think the issue, and I can speak from my side, is that I think sometimes Calvinists can become very nitpicky over minor doctrines and become almost the thought police and to, to label anybody who's not in the five point camp as um, you know, they don't understand doctrine. They don't understand theology and they can become very um, close minded and almost name calling anybody that's not a five point Calvinist, you know, they're, you're semi Pelagian, you're an Arminian. Um, and, and so I, I, especially in light of what's happening in our country the past couple of days with the Pope visiting, we as Southern Baptists have a whole lot more in common on the, the authority of the gospel and the authority of Sola Scriptura and our real issue should not be, you know, nitpicking against each other, but really standing together against culture and against, um, you know, a lot of confusion out there as far as what Christianity is with, with the, you know, the papal visit and the Roman Catholicism and things like that. And so um, my biggest fear in, in, is that um, even I was just looking at a blog today and I won't mention the blog just to be respectful but there were people on there basically saying that, you know, there's, there's coming a Calvinist takeover of the SBC and we need to fight it, you know, tooth and nail to make sure it doesn't happen. Um, I don't personally see that, but I don't necessarily want there to be a traditionalist takeover. I, I don't like the word takeover, but it makes it sound like we've got to hold fast our position and take over something. Uh, I would rather have to say, how can we all come together over the essentials and work together for the greater good and not talk about who's taken over what it's more, you know, how can we, how can we get along? Cause as bad as we love to fight and um, if it's not over something piddly, it's um, it's over theology. And so um, 
I, I guess I just get concerned. And it turns off a lot of people, especially out here in the West, that aren't Southern Baptisty. That you have a lot of people coming to your church that are just come because they like the, the doctrinal preaching and they have no idea what it means to be to be Southern Baptist. And of course, I am, and and, and I, I I'm you know I, I hold that that moniker pretty pretty tightly. But you know, most of the culture could care less about non-traditionalist and Calvinistic Southern Baptists talking about the nuances of regeneration preceding faith. We think they're very very important, but at the end of the day. Um, these people need the gospel of Christ, and you know we need to lock arms and go out there and make sure they hear about Jesus. So. Absolutely. Well, and and I, I think you make a really good point with regard to the Pope visit. And just, I mean, every time I turn on the news, the last few mornings, it's all that's on the news. And I'm yeah. just, what? I mean, w- when did they get the leader of the SBC? I mean, when's the president of the SBC get to address Congress and right. the UN? And I'm just like, this guy, this person is just somebody, a group of other people elected, and automatically he becomes this divine hero. And it's just baffling to me. Of course, I, you know, not being raised Catholic, um, it just, it's just a whole other world. And you see, and they were interviewing some of the people on the newscast, and, and I realized how dangerous, because I've always just kind of gone, yeah, yeah, okay, Catholic. But when, when I was interviewing some of the kids, teenagers, you know, they were interviewing them, it really made me realize how how dangerous this viewpoint is because they, based upon their answers, they really believed that their eternal salvation was dependent upon them being blessed by this. Um, And it was almost like they were just, it wasn't just this hero of this, you know, this, you know, like he's famous because that's the way I've always thought of it. Well, he's just famous, kind of like Matt Chandler or somebody wants to meet Matt Chandler (laughs) or get a selfie with Matt Chandler because, you know, people, you know, he's kind of the celebrity pastor kind of a guy. Um, it wasn't, it's not that at all. I mean, there, I mean, some of them may be like that, but what, what it seemed like to me is they're, they're wanting, they, they really feel that they, their salvation is affected and the likelihood of them being forgiven and thus in right standing with God depends upon a blessing that yeah. he gives to them. And that, that is just obviously very dangerous. Um, yeah. And, but, and I yeah, and I would encourage your listeners to go. I did I did a podcast yesterday on understanding Christianity, just a layman's what what is Roman Catholic belief system, and talked a little bit about that and just why it's it's so important for us to understand the differences. Yeah, well, and 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 that also brings up a good a good point with regard to the Reformation because I, I think today in today's vocabulary word we use the word reformed with regard to Calvinistic sociology, but there were both non-Calvinist and Calvinist part of the Reformation, so. Get to be to be fair and to be, um, I think, more realistic is I understand we are all Protestants and we were all part of the Reformation. And there have been streams of both Calvinistic, non-Calvinistic, and probably a lot of different streams in between because you very rarely get to theologians who agree on, on every point with regard to these doctrines um, that, have, that have flowed from the, the time of the Reformation. And so to understand that, like you said, there when you compare the Catholic worldview and the Catholic sociological views to ours, we are a lot closer together than most people uh, I think realize. Um, Now in my discussion, I will say with, with Matt Slick the other day, um, he kept accusing me of being a a Catholic. So I I thought it was a little bit of a guilt by association, but um, (laughs) anyway, that's another discussion. Yeah. Well, even Lutheran Calvin didn't agree upon the Lord's supper. So, um, and those are two heavy hitters as far as our, our, our reformed theology. So. Well, and even, yeah. And even some of the sociological differences between Lutherans and, uh, you know, more historical Calvinists today are, are quite a bit, are quite a bit different. There's some different nuances. They're definitely Lutherans are definitely more 
um, Calvinistic than I am, but they're not as Calvinistic as sure many today are. So anyway, there, there's, yeah, there's different streams and different lines of, of, of thought within all these views. But when you compare um, what we hold to with, especially when it comes to the priesthood of every believer, um, our, our ability to relate directly to Christ as the high priest, right. um, the, those kinds of teachings are so vital to point out at times like this, when you see the Pope and, um, and just the kind of the false understanding and belief that it's through the church yeah. that our salvation comes and it's through a man here on earth that's appointed by other men. Um, it's just, that's a very unbiblical doctrine and leading, leading quite a few people astray, unfortunately. Well, very good. I, I, I'm pretty much, I don't know about you. I'm kind of worn, <laughs> worn out from our discussion as far as not worn out, but I, I just, I think it's been good. Uh, I'm not sure well, how long it's been on, but it's. Oh yeah. Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's been over an hour, so it's definitely time to, to wrap up. But um, if you have, and let me just speak to the audience. If you have questions or if you have, um, uh, you know, feedback for any of our viewpoints, um, contact Sean Cole, uh, again, you can go to, to iTunes and you can find Sean at Understanding Christianity Podcast. And I think he probably has contact links through his podcast as well where you can respond. He's also on Twitter under Sean Cole. Um, isn't it Sean underscore Cole? Um, it's, it's SD Cole. Okay. SD yeah. Cole at, uh, on Twitter. And, and I, have a, I have a website, SeanCole.net, S-E-A-N-C-O-L-E.net. And all my contact information is there. Okay. Um, and th- thanks for... Um, putting that app there. And, and if you have questions for him, um, I recommend his podcast. I've listened to several others that are not even necessarily on soteriology. And, um, and he does a great job laying out um, the Christian faith and answering things in a very, uh, I, I think, uh, well-informed way and very educated in his, his perspective and appreciate him very much. Um, you can find me at soteriology101.com. Um, and there's a contact page there as well. If you'd like to get a hold of me, and, um, and on Twitter by the same name, Sociology 101, um, or my name, Leighton Flowers, if you want to follow us there. So um, appreciate you all tuning in, and uh, we'll see you next time. Blessings.